Mai. Good morning. This is Judith Lay welcoming you to Manx Radio and to the podcast of this week's edition of At Your Service. Manx Radio. On today's programme, Michael Layden is back talking about his own journey from Liverpool schoolboy to the first Dean of Emmanuel Theological College. But first, as we approach the 50th anniversary of one of the very darkest days in Manx history, we pause to remember the Summerland tragedy, in which 50 people died and 80 were injured. A few years after the devastating fire on August 2nd, 1973, a second Summerland was built on the same site. But by 2006, this too had developed serious problems and the decision was taken to demolish it. The then Bishop of Soder and Man, the Right Reverend Graham Knowles, felt strongly that, given the history of the site, an open-air service should be held there before the demolition began. And I'm using my report from that service, first broadcast in September 2006, as our Summerland Act of Remembrance. It was the Lord Bishop, the Right Reverend Graham Knowles, who originally suggested the service, and so it was fitting that he should lead it. With the demolition of the building known as Summerland, a sad chapter in the life of our island comes to an end. We call to mind the people who lost their lives in the fire of the 2nd of August 1973. We remember the further 80 people who were seriously injured. We pray for those who still mourn the loss of a family member or a loved friend. We pray for those whose lives were changed beyond all recognition by the events of that day. We also remember those who were caught up in the disaster, the emergency services, doctors and nurses on duty on the day, those who worked to care for mourners and were involved in the administration of the aftermath of the disaster. In the darkness of those events, we look to Christ who is our light and our hope. His Excellency the Lieutenant Governor, Sir Paul, and Lady Haddocks were present, and Sir Paul gave the Bible reading. The President of Tinwald, the Honourable Noel Kringle, MLC, gave the secular readings, two poems, one by Joyce Grenfell, and this. Remember by Christina Rossetti. Remember me when I am gone away gone far away into the silent land, when you can no more hold me by the hand, nor I half turn, yet turning stay. Remember me when no more day by day you tell me of our future that you planned. Only remember me. You understand it will be late to counsel then, or pray. Yet, if you should forget me for a while, and afterwards remember, do not grieve. For if the darkness and corruption leave a vestige of the thoughts that once I had, better by far you should forget and smile than that you should remember and be sad. Built to cater for up to 10,000 customers, the futuristic new Summerland opened in the summer of 1971 and was quite simply the place to be. 
But in a few short years, it became something very different, as Minister for Tourism and Leisure, David Cretney, recalls. What had been such an optimistic venture was a twisted, scorched shell of metal. Reports of panic emerged, and as so often occurs in the face of such tragedies, stories of real human bravery, service before self, were accounted. A new building was reopened in 1978, and that now, as, as well, is all but gone. It had become an ugly hulk, with rust emerging from it, and government had invested substantially into the lovely refurbished Villa Marina. In the meantime, Douglas Corporation had provided a permanent memorial to those lost in the Summerland tragedy in the gardens at the bottom of Summer Hill. When I moved the resolution in Timmel to secure the funds to demolish Summerland, the Lord Bishop suggested, when the site was cleared, that we should assemble here to remember those who perished in the fire, those injured, and those who may still suffer today. And it is right that we all do so. As we close this chapter and look to the future, we must all feel the pain and suffering, but also remember the stories of great human bravery and trust that those affected by the tragedy, in whatever way, can have their burden lifted a little with the passage of time. The act of remembrance itself was the poignant reading aloud of the names of people who died in the fire. Wreaths were then laid by His Excellency the Lieutenant Governor, the Honourable David Cretney, MHK, and Her Worship the Mayor of Douglas, Mrs Betty Quirk. And as the last notes of the national anthem drifted over a hushed crowd, the sky blackened, the wind freshened, and a light rain fell. Moments later, a rainbow, that traditional symbol of hope and promise, arced across the bay and disappeared into the clouds high over the Summerland site. Later today, there'll be a national service of remembrance organised by government to mark the 50th anniversary of the Summerland tragedy. It's this afternoon at four o'clock in St George's Church here in Douglas, and it's our chance to pay tribute to those who died, survived or responded to the fire. A book of commemoration has been created containing the names of the 50 people who died. Anyone coming to today's service can view the book and use a dedicated section to record their own tributes and memories. Led by the Venerable Irene Cowell, Archdeacon of Man and Vicar of St George's, today's service will be attended by His Excellency the Lieutenant Governor, Sir John Lorimer, and Lady Lorimer, the Chief Minister, Government Ministers and Tinwell Members the Mayor of Douglas and Douglas Councillors, together with the Chief Constable, the Chief Fire Officer and retired officers from both services, representatives from local churches and all of the island's emergency services. If you can't get to St George's, you can watch online via a live stream hosted by St George's Church on YouTube and also on the government website. Go to gov.im forward slash Summerland50 and the service will remain available to view after the event on the Isle of Man Government YouTube channel. The service will also be broadcast live this afternoon here on Manx Radio on AM, DAB and at manxradio.com. 
and on the 50th anniversary itself, this Wednesday, the 2nd, there'll be a service of remembrance at 7pm at the Kay Memorial Gardens at the bottom of Summer Hill here in Douglas. And at the same time, 7pm on Wednesday the 2nd, there'll be one minute silence on the Summerland site itself. But whether we're old enough to have been there or young enough to view this as part of history, of one thing we can be certain, no one will ever forget. In a world where people walk in darkness, let us turn our faces to the light. Music there from the St. Martin Singers. And so to our final guest today, and it's welcome back to Reverend Canon Dr. Michael Layden, Dean of Emmanuel Theological College. Last week, he shared his vision for a new approach to equipping people for lay and ordained ministry. And if you missed that interview and you'd like to listen again, it's available as a podcast at manxradio.com. 
but this morning it's Michael's own story, his journey from Liverpool schoolboy to inspirational leader. Incidentally, those are my words and the words of some of his students, not in the least how Michael would describe himself. Interestingly, Michael's upbringing didn't immediately point to a life centred on serving God. Irish Catholic family, which is pretty staple in Liverpool, as you will know. But um, we were certainly culturally uh, had a bit of religion floating around, but we didn't really go to church, maybe for Christmas for a carol service or something, but not really much else. My grandmother had been a very prayerful uh, Christian woman. Uh, she died when I was quite young, and I just don't think it sort of passed on into the family. It wasn't that we were anti-religion or even against God or atheists, just wasn't part of what we did, wasn't part of our culture. So um, it, I was religious adjacent, I suppose you might say, but not really very religious, no. I went to a Church of England primary school, which had virtually no effect on me at all in that sense, really, that I could see anyway. It was in a, a bit of Liverpool that um, back in the 1980s, uh, maybe I might have said it was a sort of urban priority area or an area of deprivation. It was a difficult place to live, as the 80s was for lots of people in, in urban contexts. But actually it was at high school. I didn't go to the local high school. I went on the bus ride to, to one of the big schools in the city. I, I passed an exam, which was a bit of a shock for everybody involved. Not least me, but certainly other members of the family. And went off to, to one of the big schools in the city, which was great. I meant hopping on the bus every morning at sort of quarter past seven. And I got to know people from all over, all sorts of backgrounds, all over the city. All sorts of sort of socio-economic backgrounds and intellectual backgrounds and faith backgrounds. And uh, had a couple of friends who were Christians, went to church thought this was a bit weird, got talking to them, discovered something called a Christian Union, which met once a week. Uh, it was our maths teacher and our chemistry teacher, one of our history teachers, and they convened sort of discussion groups, really, opportunities to ask questions, uh, to be argumentative, to prod a little bit, and um, I had a lot of questions, and I went along to ask a lot of questions, really. Did you find the answers, or did, were they just the answers that got you thinking more deeply yourself? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, in part, I found some answers, or at least the beginnings of some answers. Because my questions, some of them were kind of really difficult existential questions. What's the point of all of this stuff? Why am I here? Looking for some kind of meaning. And really, what I discovered wasn't answers. I think what I discovered was a person. I think I encountered, in some way or other, Jesus Christ in, in the folk I met in their willingness to put up with a slightly bolshy, difficult, questioning person who was sort of wrestling with life and identity and all that sort of stuff. And they very calmly, very gently taught me to read scripture, helped me to think Christianly about things. And eventually, I think it was, it was my sort of combination of two of my, or three of my teachers who sort of said, look, you've been asking a lot of questions. Um, have you ever considered saying a prayer? Have you ever considered reaching out and seeing if God is there? And uh, that's, I think, what I did eventually, yeah. I, I, I can't speak highly enough of those teachers, and two of them I stayed very close with even even now, and this is 30 years ago, near enough, and remarkable people who very, very, very bright. So my chemistry teacher, for example, who I've stayed close with, I mean, I, I was very rude to him, actually. When I think back now, you know, he, I heard that he'd been at Cambridge University, very bright, intelligent man, was a chemist, um, done postgraduate studies, and so I sort of basically said to him, look, you're a scientist, you're supposed to be intelligent, you went to one of the best universities in the world, but you do God 
help me make sense of that because my understanding is scientists don't do god surely evolution's disproved that or richard dawkins has told us that that god and science don't don't mix and actually what i discovered and i never became a scientist but i liked hanging around with those sorts of people what i discovered is that loads of people of faith who are also scientists and in fact some of the most significant discoveries even in the 20th and 21st century have been made by people of faith and so the two aren't opposites at all. And again, the person my, who taught me history, the person who taught me um, RE and philosophy, really open to questions. And in fact, what I found is they also have lots of questions. And what they were really good at was directing me Godward for the answers. And not, not simple answers that you can sort of put in your back pocket for a rainy day, but actually really deep answers about meaning and purpose and direction and what we're here for and what we're here to do. And those questions have lived with me ever since. I, I went on through GCSEs and A-levels into university to read philosophy and theology and to study a bit of law uh, and really to work at the interface of belief and practice, what we might call doctrine and ethics. So these things have kind of stayed with me since childhood. With that inquiring mind and with the studies that you were doing, you could have done a lot of different things. Yeah. So what did you do when you left university? Well, my parents might say I never really left university. So I, I, I did an undergraduate degree, um, uh, I stayed and did a master's, uh, met a really great woman uh, who I'm married to now, and we've been married for uh, 16 years, um, been together for nearly 20. And um, Anna, and uh, I decided I would hang around. I had opportunities. I, I had some funding towards a, a, a doctorate over in the United States, some opportunities to go up and study in Scotland. But I decided to stay in England decided to stay local, got a job working for an antiquarian book dealer, um, did some further study for fun because I wanted to stay local enough to try and um, persuade Anna to marry me, which she did. So that was the only charm offensive I've ever mounted and it worked. Um, and then, then really, I, I really thought what I would do with my life is teach because I've been inspired by these teachers. I wasn't sure if I wanted to teach young people, teenagers, because I wasn't sure if I would be able to do that well. I was quite shy and... Um, grew up with a bit of a, a stutter and a lisp when I was anxious. Um, but I thought I could go into adult education. So I was really exploring teaching in, in, in an FE or an HE context, university context. But at the same time, uh, I was wrestling with a sense of vocation, a call maybe to, to priestly ministry, being ordained. Um, and in those teenage years after I'd sort of come to faith for myself, I'd kind of settled in the local Church of England church. My, I came to faith when I was sort of 13. My parents weren't very keen on me going to church because it seemed a bit odd for a teenager in an estate in Liverpool, like when we grew up in, to be going to church. They weren't against it. They were just a bit concerned because they didn't know anybody. It wasn't their, their social background, their, their setting. So when I was 16, I was allowed to go to the youth group. And so I made those sorts of connections there, really. And that, that helped me, I think, then to, to develop friendships and, and, and also to, with peers to explore who I am and what I'm about. I think that's probably where a sense of vocation developed. So in my early 20s, having finished my BA and then MA, hanging around, waiting to marry this beautiful woman, working a bit, earning some money, but also thinking, what am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? And this question of being a priest, of, of being a, a pastor, a minister, and a teacher. They were in the mix, and they were sort of really at the forefront of my mind. And I had lots of super bright friends who were off to be lawyers and financiers and that sort of thing. And I thought, maybe maybe that's what I wanted to go, and earn lots of money. But no, that's not what happened. I, I think in the end, it became super clear to me and a lot of other people that I should be pursuing pastoral ministry. And so in my mid-20s, I went off to train to be ordained. 
Now, your wife, Anna, she also is a vicar. She is. Now, did you train together or was that something that came at different times? No, it came at different times. I went first. I was sort of cannon fodder. So I went first to try it all out. And, um, and I served back in Liverpool Diocese. I trained in the Midlands and I hadn't lived in Liverpool for, for quite a long time by the point I was ordained, nearly 10 years. But I went back to Liverpool because it was my home, the place I'd sort of been nurtured, the place I'd come to faith. And I wanted to serve, so I was back there. And I did three or four years back in Liverpool Diocese and then I went down to to Chester Diocese, to Crewe. Most of my kind of ordained ministry has been in big post-industrial towns, often on the wane, to be honest, in terms of some of the social issues, but really amazing people, brilliant places, inspiring places to be. And in all of that, I think Anna knew that she also was called to ordain ministry. And for a lot of that time, we were trying to figure out, can you be married and both be vicars? We have children, 13 and 10. Is it fair to them to grow up with two clergy parents? Isn't that a bit cruel? You know, you hear of people, children of the manse rebelling because more and more dad is a, is a minister in the church, but to have both parents just doesn't seem very kind. But our children have done really well and they enjoy it. And we are a sort of we're a team, really. So, yeah, my wife is a vicar in, in just outside of Chester, a place called Newtown. A really remarkable place, old sort of Victorian terraced houses with little yards, but really tight-knit community. Not posh Chester that you might be thinking of if you've ever visited Chester, but really salt-of-the-earth, good people, and we enjoy those sorts of places. Now, your wife is an active vicar, as mm-hmm. you say, in the, in the parish in Newtown. Do you find that that keeps you in a parish context that you might not otherwise have being so absorbed with the college? Yes, she makes great use of me on her rotors, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. Yeah, I, I think it's really important, and we say this to all of our staff, actually. We've got uh, 21 staff um, at Emmanuel. Uh, everybody, we say, be rooted in a local church. And for those who are ordained, and there are several, or for those who've got a licence from the bishop in lay ministry, exercise that ministry. Preach and teach and lead regularly with ordinary Christian folk, not those who are training for ministry, but actually just folk who are trying to live their Christian lives, turn up for church Sunday by Sunday and who want to be fed and nourished. And we think that keeps us alive. Do you have any dreams for the future? That's a great question. I think I've peaked too soon in that I've done my dream job too early and I can't do it forever and I know that. So I'm sort of pondering what it means to be in my kind of 40s doing what I really want to do. The Lord is good. I don't need to worry about the future for me. I think for the church, though, the thing I'm really, really excited about is watching a generation of confident, creative clergy who will take risks. And that's what we need, actually. The thing I keep saying over and over to students, to key stakeholders, even to bishops, is we don't know what the future of the church is going to look like. We don't. But we know what the church is for, because Jesus has told us that, that we're agents of the kingdom of God. A community of transformation, communities of justice, of inclusion, of love, of hospitality, of radical service. So we know what kind of leaders we need. We don't necessarily know what skills they need to be able to do the stuff of the future because not all churches will meet in the same way. Even on the island here, there are churches that don't meet in church buildings anymore, meeting in pubs uh, and all sorts of places, and that's great. But we know what kind of people we need, people of Christ-like character. We want to be the kind of community that stands shoulder to shoulder, not to check each other out, but to stand shoulder to shoulder looking at Christ and learning from him how to be the church today. People with energy, folk who will, will love God and will love other people. And I think it's about character. We want um, Christ-like character. We want people who love and will serve. And how they do that? Well, each context will dictate what's needed. But that they do that is imperative.
a familiar setting of the 23rd Psalm, The Lord's My Shepherd, sung there by Wallingford Parish Church Choir. And before that, I was talking with Reverend Canon Dr. Michael Layden, Dean of Emmanuel Theological College, where several students from the island are currently preparing for ordination. And now it's notice board time and we begin with a reminder that today is the final chance to enjoy the beautiful singing of the boys of Broughton Parish Church Choir as their week on the island draws to a close. They'll be in St Peter's Church in Craigneesh this afternoon at a quarter past three to sing choral evensong. And our thanks to their musical director, John Catterall, who works so hard with the team from Broughton in Lancashire to make these very popular annual choir holidays such a success. And it's beach mission time again in Peel and Port St Mary. Both offer age-appropriate, Bible-based, songs, stories, activities, fun and games for children each day for the next two weeks. The Peel Beach Mission meets on the beach opposite the kiosk on the prom with three sessions each weekday at a quarter to eleven, half past two and four o'clock. You'll find full details on their Facebook page. Just go to facebook.com and search for Peel Beach Mission. And this is a particularly special year for the Peel Beach Mission as it celebrates its 60th birthday. It's also a time to reflect and give thanks for the life of Michael Clarkson, who gave so much to the Beach Mission and who died in the autumn of last year. There'll be a special service of celebration and reflection on Saturday, the 5th of August, at 7 o'clock in Peel Methodist Church, with a warm welcome for all, but especially for anyone who's had any connection with the Beach Mission in Peel in years gone by. Port St Mary Beach Mission starts today and the team will be on the beach below Malmore on the lower promenade this afternoon between half past three and five o'clock and they'd love to see you there. Starting tomorrow there are daily sessions for naught to 17 year olds in six age groups and special events for adults and children too. You'll find all the details on their Facebook page. Go to facebook.com and search for Port St Mary SU Beach Mission. I'm afraid that that's all we've time for now, but there'll be lots more notice board news tonight on Sundown, including concert details and information about St Mackle's Week, which started yesterday and offers lots of special events from walks and talks to afternoon teas over the coming days. So I'll be in our virtual lounge tonight at nine with Sundown. Easy listening music and your requests and dedications, and I'd love you to join me if you can. And so, until whenever we meet again, this is Judith saying thank you for listening and I wish you and those you love a blessed and peaceful week and a very good morning. Music.